Welcome back to Nudie Reads, a classic podcast for my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour, and you're welcome to listen along. It's Sunday, and that means I'm reading a classic. Thursdays are for offbeat stuff. But whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. Tonight's classic is the best-selling mystery book of all time. Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, of 1939. It is my favourite of all her works. I do love Murder on the Orient Express, of course. I'm a huge Hercule Poirot fan. But And Then There Were None doesn't feature any detective. It's just an excellent mystery to occupy your mind. Who done it? No spoilers. I'm going to read a couple small parts of Chapter 1 to share with you how gifted Christie was as a writer, and I sincerely hope you join the 100 million or more people who have already bought and read this book. For my review, I give it three thumbs up. It is terrific. Christie herself was quite proud of it. She declared it her most difficult to map out and said the story took her years. It really is a mind-bender, and we know it was close to her heart, because she set it where she grew up. Devon, in England. Down south, on the water. The premise is elegant and simple. Eight people arrive in a remote setting. An island off the coast of Devon. Their host is absent but the housekeepers are present, a husband and wife team. The host leaves a recording accusing each of the ten of a murder, and they start to die in the same order as a well-known old 19th century rhyme. Ten little soldier boys went out to dine, one choked his little self and then there were nine. Nine little soldier boys sat up very late. One overslept himself, and then there were eight. And so on and so on. Intriguing, right? There is a lot to say about Agatha Christie, too much for this podcast. Born 1890 and died 1976. That, as the British say, is a good innings. She led a fascinating life, but what I find most interesting about her is her perseverance. Her first novel was rejected six times, and she didn't lose heart. And when it was finally taken on and published, she felt the arrangement was not as good for her as it could be. She took it anyway, because something is always better than nothing in business. But she knew she could improve it, so she structured her ownerships of her copyrights very carefully to get the best financial outcome for herself the ultimate girl boss. Now, the original book had an awful title, as Christie based it on an old 19th century rhyme. And back then, words were consumed differently, shall we say, in different parts of the world. But thankfully, the Americans in 1939 were appalled, and they were having none of it. And so, they insisted on a name change. 
So we now have the much better and much more mysterious title, And Then There Were None. A positive change without losing any of the mystery. Well done to the American Word Police of 1939. They did a great job. So with that behind us, let's begin. In the corner of a first-class smoking carriage, Mr Justice Wargrave, lately retired from the bench, puffed at a cigar and ran an interested eye through the political news in the Times. He laid the paper down and glanced out of the window. They were running now through Somerset. He glanced at his watch. Another two hours to go. He went over in his mind all that had appeared in the papers about Indian Island. There had been its original purchase by an American millionaire who was crazy about yachting, and an account of the luxurious modern house he had built on this little island off the Devon coast. The unfortunate fact that the new third wife of the American millionaire was a bad sailor had led to the subsequent putting up of the house and island for sale. Various glowing advertisements of it had appeared in the papers. Then came the first bald statement that it had been bought, by a Mr. Owen. After that, the rumours of the gossip writers had started. Indian Island had really been bought by Miss Gabrielle Turl, the Hollywood film star. She wanted to spend some months there, free from all publicity. Busy Bee had hinted delicately that it was to be an abode for royalty? Mr Merriweather had had it whispered to him that it had been bought for a honeymoon. Young Lord L had surrendered to Cupid at last. Jones knew for a fact that it had been purchased by the Admiralty, with a view to carrying out some very hush-hush experiments. Oh, definitely, Indian Island was news. From his pocket, Mr Justice Wargrave drew out a letter. The handwriting was practically illegible, but words here and there stood out with unexpected clarity. Dearest Lawrence, such years since I heard anything of you. Must come to Indian Island, the most enchanting place. So much to talk over. Old days. Communion with nature. Bask in sunshine. 12.40 from Paddington. Meet you at Oakbridge. And his correspondent signed herself with a flourish, his ever Constance Culmington. Mr Justice Wargrave cast back in his mind to remember when exactly he had seen Lady Constance Culmington. It must be seven, no, eight years ago. She had then been going to Italy to bask in the sun and be at one with nature and the contadini. Later, he had heard, she had proceeded to Syria, where she proposed to bask in yet stronger sun, and live at one with nature and the Bedouin. Constance Culmington, he reflected to himself, was exactly the sort of woman who would buy an island and surround herself with mystery. Nodding his head in gentle approval of his logic, Mr Justice Wargrave allowed his head to nod. He slept. Dr Armstrong was driving his Morris across Salisbury Plain. He was very tired. 
success had its penalties. There had been a time when he had sat in his consulting room in Harley Street, correctly apparelled, surrounded with the most up-to-date appliances and the most luxurious furnishings, and waited. Waited through the empty days for his venture to succeed or fail. Well, it had succeeded. He'd been lucky. Lucky and skillful, of course. He was a good man at his job, but that wasn't enough for success. You had to have luck as well. And he'd had it. An accurate diagnosis. A couple of grateful women patients. Women with money and position. And word had got about. You ought to try Armstrong. Quite a young man, but so clever. Pam had been to all sorts of people for years, and he put his finger on the trouble at once. The ball had started rolling, and now Dr. Armstrong had definitely arrived. His days were full, he had little leisure, and so, on this August morning, he was glad that he was leaving London and going to be for some days on an island off the Devon coast. Not that it was exactly a holiday. The letter he had received had been rather vague in its terms, but there was nothing vague about the accompanying cheque. A whacking fee. These Owens must be rolling in money. Some little difficulty, it seemed, a husband who was worried about his wife's health and wanted a report on it without her being alarmed. She wouldn't hear of seeing a doctor. Her nerves. (sighs) Nerves. The doctor's eyebrows went up. These women and their nerves. Well, it was good for business, after all. Half the women who consulted him had nothing the matter with them but boredom. But they wouldn't thank you for telling them so. And one could usually find something. A slight uncommon condition of the... some long word. Nothing at all serious, but it just needs putting right. A simple treatment. Well. Medicine was mostly faith-healing when it came to it, and he had a good manner. He could inspire hope and belief. Lucky that he'd managed to pull himself together in time after that business ten, no, fifteen years ago. It had been a near thing, that. He'd been going to pieces. The shock had pulled him together. He'd cut out the drink altogether. By Jove, it had been a near thing, though. Mr. Bloor was in the slow train from Plymouth. There was only one other person in his carriage, an elderly seafaring gentleman with a bleary eye. At the present moment, he had dropped off to sleep. Mr. Bloor was writing carefully in a little notebook. That's the lot, he muttered to himself. Emily Brent, Vera Claythorne, Dr. Armstrong, Anthony Marston. Old Justice Wargrave, Philip Lombard, General MacArthur, CMGDSO, and manservant and wife, Mr. and Mrs. Rogers. He closed the notebook and put it back in his pocket. He glanced over at the corner and the slumbering man. Had one over eight, diagnosed Mr. Bloor accurately. He went over things carefully and conscientiously in his mind. Job ought to be easy enough, he ruminated. Don't see how I can slip up on it. Hope I look all right. He stood up and scrutinised himself anxiously in the glass. 
The face reflected there was that of a slightly military cast, with a moustache. There was very little expression in it. The eyes were grey and set rather close together. Hmm, might be a major, said Mr. Bloor. No, no, I forgot. There's that old military gent. He'd spot me at once. Hmm, South Africa, said Mr. Bloor. That's my line. None of these people have anything to do with South Africa, and I've just been reading that travel folder, so I can talk about it all right. Fortunately, there were all sorts and types of colonials. As a man of means from South Africa, Mr. Bloor felt that he could enter into any society unchallenged. Indian Island He remembered Indian Island as a boy. Smelly sort of rock covered with gulls stood about a mile from the coast. It had got its name from its resemblance to a man's head, an American Indian profile. Funny idea to go and build a house on it. Awful in bad weather. But millionaires were full of whims. The old man in the corner woke up and said, You can't never tell at sea. Never. Mr. Bloor said soothingly, That's right. You can't. The old man hiccuped twice and said plaintively, There's a squall coming. Mr. Bloor said, No, no, mate, it's a lovely day. The old man said angrily, There's a squall ahead. I can smell it. Maybe you're right, said Mr. Bloor pacifically. The train stopped at a station and the old fellow rose unsteadily. This is where I get out. He fumbled with the window. Mr. Bloor helped him. The old man stood in the doorway. He raised a solemn hand and blinked his bleary eyes. Watch and pray, he said. Watch and pray. The day of judgment is at hand. He collapsed through the doorway onto the platform. From a recumbent position, he looked up at Mr. Bloor and said, with immense dignity, I'm talking to you, young man. The day of judgment is very close at hand. Subsiding onto his seat, Mr. Bloor thought to himself, he's nearer the day of judgment than I am. But there, as it happens, he was wrong. And that's where we'll leave it tonight. Talk about jumping right in. Agatha, setting up all her characters. If you're not hooked, what are you playing at? Get reading. Or watching, if you prefer. If you're more visual, there is a fantastic 1974 film of the book. It's set in pre-revolutionary Iran. Starring Oliver Reed and James Mason, the settings are jaw-droppingly beautiful. They seem empty and remote. The Abazi Hotel, Ali Kapu Palace and Shah Mosque. All in Isfahan and some other spots in Persepolis and in Spain. For listeners of the pod in Iran, I expect you'll get cooking and maybe enjoy a bit of Isfahan biryani as you watch. I could do with some right now. Persian food is delicious. There was also a pretty neat BBC short series of the story done in the last five years or so, 
and there are some audiobooks. However you enjoy it, I can recommend, and then there were none. Okay, I'll be back on Thursday night, 9pm Sydney time, with something offbeat. But just before I scoot, a quick pod update. Mother is still listening and she approves. And I'd like to welcome new listeners in Maine, in the US. Thank you so much for joining. I put out the call for listeners there to help us get to a full house of listeners in every US state, and Nudie Reed listeners have delivered. Well, I presume so. I presume it's not a coincidence, since Maine has been holding out for so long. But even if it is a coincidence, thank you for joining this crew of lovers of great writing, and thank you for sharing. I'm always letting friends know about podcasts I like, and my friends do the same for me. It's always great when we can get the same pleasure having shared different sources. So I hope you feel comfortable sharing Nudie Reads. I really appreciate all you listeners, and I hope you have a great rest of the week. Till next time, take care. It's slippery out there, and thanks for listening to Nudie Reads.